Hello, everyone, and welcome to Energy Security Cube, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and in the environment. I am your host, CEO and President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. On today's episode, recorded 23 June 2021, we discuss a possible shortfall of oil supply relative to demand and the changing role of OPEC and leading Western oil companies in supplying this demand. Joining me from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, is Adam Semensky. Adam is the president of the King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Center, or CAPSARC, in Riyadh. Prior to his current role, he was the James R. Schlesinger Chair for Energy and Geopolitics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS. In addition, he has also been the non-resident senior advisor to the CSIS Energy and National Security Program and Senior Director for Energy and Environment on the staff of the United States National Security Council. Welcome, Adam. We are happy and really lucky to have you. Kelly, I'm delighted to be back uh, with you again and uh, looking forward to uh, talking uh, about uh, what's going on in the world of energy. I uh, used to travel to Calgary quite a bit when I was in the uh, financial analysis business with a series of international banks, and I'm delighted to uh, have the opportunity to uh, work with uh, Canadians again, uh, Canada being a very important part of the global energy scene. Thank you. Well, that's great. And I, it's nice to, that, that those are nice words and they're, they're so important to what we're trying to do here because, you know, in a world of a hundred million barrels of oil per day, you know, Canada has the opportunity to produce 5% of that oil in a lot different way than some of the other players, I'm not going to speak to countries or organizations, but, um, you know, it's important for our listeners to understand from a global perspective what's happening. And let's move right into the demand curve over the next few years. During the pandemic, many forecasters speculated that oil demand would never return to pre-pandemic levels. The June oil market report by the International Energy Agency, the IAA, however, sees oil demand rising to 2019 levels of more than 100 million barrels per day by the end of 2022. What do you think changed to cause this difference between old expectations that we would see in a a fall in demand, and new forecasts showing demand rebounding? Well, the uh, CAPSARC does its own uh, supply and demand forecasts, and we're also saying that uh, by the second half uh, of 2022, there's a pretty good chance that oil demand will be over 100 million barrels a day. I think that what uh, is really driving this is in really rough terms, uh, we had a really bad economic year in 2020 with the global economy falling by more than 3%. The year before, it grew by almost 3%. We're having a really strong recovery now uh, in 2021, and that recovery is expected to continue uh, into 2022 with two big uh, things that are important when you think about it. One, the level of economic stimulus that governments around the world are putting into their economies to try to react to the COVID pandemic. And secondly, the kind of bounce back uh, that we're uh, seeing uh, from consumers in terms of, of wanting to uh, get back onto airplanes and into their cars and, and ordering goods that require energy to produce. So it's not really that much of a surprise uh, in my mind that we're bouncing back. There were a lot of people that said we had already peaked uh, you know, for oil demand. But I think that that's sometimes more of a scenario or a wish than it is a, a really good forecast. And our forecast is economic growth 
and population growth, particularly in the emerging markets and developing economies around the world, is going to drive oil demand upward uh, for some period of time. Yeah, you know, you you look at these giant stimulus packages by you know the United States and others to bring the economy back, and also necessary infrastructure uh, rebuilds that are you know that are in the pipeline, so to speak. Maybe a bad analogy, but it certainly is. You know, you can't build new things without fuel and uh, the amount of you know large construction equipment and things like that that are that draw on diesel fuel and therefore oil. So, you know, I agree with you completely. I think that uh, the the death of oil demand increases is uh, still, we're still in the twilight of that, that evening, at least. Um, I'd like to talk Kelly, a bit. Kelly, of, let, me add a, let me add just a couple of other. Sure. Absolutely. Adam. The, and you started in on it. Look, a lot of these forecasts for oil demand is going to decline are coming from the idea that the energy transition that's underway is going to electrify everything. Uh, we're going to have all of our energy coming from solar and wind or other renewables, you know, maybe biofuels. But there are some areas uh, that are really difficult to decarbonize. First of all, biofuels are limited in, the, in how, how much you can produce over a period of time. But there are sectors of the economy, aviation, uh, marine shipping, heavy-duty trucking, cement manufacturing, metal smelting. These require like big BTUs. I mean, you know, like a lot yeah. of heat. <laughs> and, and oil is, uh, is going to be supplying a lot of, a lot of that heat. Uh, then you have the the second thing that I'd want to throw in here is uh, I just heard people at the International Energy Agency say that there's there's still a couple of billion people that don't have clean cooking fuels. There's a billion people that don't have electricity. Uh, the growth rates of economies, uh, even with COVID in in Asia, Latin America, and Africa. Are going to require fuel, and yes, we can do a lot of that with renewables, but not all of it. And uh, as a consequence, I think that you're going to see the need for hydrocarbons, oil and natural gas, uh, for for some time. Back to you. Yeah, you know the the it's off. There's just a misunderstanding about the den density of commodities and or. Uh, sources of energy outside of hydro and oil and natural gas. They, they just don't do enough work in the shorter period, especially where people are starting from ground zero. Um, there's a term out there that's been used since the early 70s that uh, I'd like you to expand on a little bit because you're right in the crux of where the term comes from, and that's the term of swing producer. And, you know, for four decades, five, I guess, um, the world has kind of defined Saudi Arabia as the swing producer. Would you would you please expand on what swing producer means and the historic role of Saudi Arabia in fulfilling that role and and maybe clarify how the U.S. shale boom did not provide that what, what I'd call the pickup that can be that can happen fairly quickly from large production to bring supply and demand back into a zero balance. Well, first of all, swing producer is kind of an interesting term. Uh, especially if you think that it implies one country acting alone. Uh, and a lot of people have pointed to Saudi Arabia uh, in that context. And it's been made pretty clear by policymakers uh, in Saudi Arabia that they will not act alone, uh, that providing stability to the global oil markets requires a cooperation of a lot of countries. And it's not even just OPEC. It's uh, what we saw back in uh, April and May of last year with the huge drop in demand is uh, 
cooperation from all of the G20 countries, the energy ministers met and said, uh, this is a, a really huge blow to the global economy, what's going on with the pandemic, uh, and that it would be exacerbated if we had uh, volatility in oil on top of what was going on in the economy. And it was even consuming countries were looking to see what they could do actually to help stabilize oil prices. Saudi Arabia played a, a big role in that. And there are a number of people who uh, believe that the joint action uh, that was encouraged by Saudi Arabia uh, was instrumental in providing economic stability for the entire world. Kelly, you started out uh, with uh, uh, framing this, I think, actually in a really good way. Uh, you have, you know, what can you do almost instantaneously or very quickly, you know, within a, within a matter of weeks? What can you do within a matter of months? And, you know, what can you do in a period that's longer than that, like maybe a year or so? Uh, the easiest uh, answer to, uh, to really quick swing production, and you mentioned U.S. shale, uh, probably lies uh, with those countries that have spare capacity uh, that can be geared up within a relatively short period of time, 30, 60 days. Uh, even in the United States uh, and other countries in uh, the who are IEA members in the OECD, there has been a requirement to carry uh, inventories. Yeah, and the uh, petroleum reserves. Yeah, the petroleum reserves, and those are available in emergencies. And in some cases, uh, that might even be easier, you know, to to put onto the market. And there, ha again, there have been occasions uh, where uh, countries with spare production capacity have worked in cooperation with those countries that have petroleum reserves uh, to stabilize the market. Uh, then you have shale, and that you know, can be done uh, probably over the course of, of a few months. But uh, recently, the uh, investment uh, there has been lagging, and, and that could be an issue for shale. And then finally, you have uh, the kind of longer term well, if prices are high enough, it's going to encourage investment in, in uh, oil uh, and natural gas production. And people can go out and drill and develop fields and so on. But that usually takes a long period of time. And that could be literally measured in years. So swing production, I, I think there are a lot of definitions associated with that. And I think it's important to, to separate those two. If you kind of come back to OPEC and 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 let me just for a minute mention that CAPSARC did a study a couple of years ago on the value of OPEC's spare production to the global economy. And what our peer-reviewed paper uh, on this said was that the world's economy was better off by billions of dollars a year by the fact that OPEC was able to put oil on the market when it was needed and remove it from the market, that, that very high prices and very low prices are not really in the interests of uh, stable global economic output. And, uh, and that's actually been the case. And this number was, uh, was upwards of $100 billion. I mean, we're talking about serious money. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, I'll remind our listeners that back in February and March, when the giant problems existed in the Texas gas market, Texas imported about three BCF a day of gas from Canada. And because of the, the great elastic system of pipelines and support and production availability of gas in Canada, within days, the 
Canada was shipping eight BCF a day of gas into Texas to help bring together their, you know, the, you know, so you're right. It isn't just oil. That's the other thing about the energy density and ability to perform where the, where the economy and the the society needs it. And, uh, you know, people sometimes forget that. And I just, you just can't turn wind turbines on. Um, so I'm not going to go there. I, I, uh, I get all wound up when I, well, talk I don't, about you know, let's not get each other wound up here, Kelly, but the, there is some truth to the fact that, that if, if the problem, I mean, look, everybody agrees that temperatures have been going up and that, that emissions of particularly uh, carbon dioxide, but methane uh, as well uh, are a serious problem. And scientists and politicians pretty much agree on this question is, what do you do about it? And there are some people that are saying, well, what we need to do is ban the use of oil and gas. And the, the problem is not oil and gas. The problem is emissions. So are there solutions uh, available to manage emissions from uh, hydrocarbons, but still take advantage of the uh, enormous energy that they can provide? And what you reminded me of when you mentioned the, the Canadian gas coming down via pipeline systems is one of the problems with the idea that we should stop investing uh, in oil and gas is there is a tremendous amount of infrastructure, whether it's pipelines or ports, uh, refineries, uh, and, and just you know on and on, uh, that prematurely abandoning uh, this infrastructure uh, could be hugely damaging to the global economy, could reduce access and could uh, reduce reliability of service. And that's exactly what you were saying, Kelly. Yeah. And I think that the, there, there'll be a leveling. I just, it has to happen. Um, but let's talk about oil prices. I just saw multitasking here, Adam, as I'm sure every, everyone does on these things, is I just saw three or four things I receive every day. It's, it's eight o'clock in the morning here in Calgary, and we really appreciate you coming on late in the day. Is it after five in in, uh, yes, it is. in react. Um, so thank you for that. Um, but you know, there's a, there's a lot of pundits out there saying that oil's going to a hundred dollars a barrel. And, right. uh, you know, when you look at the amount of, you know, the oil declines just naturally without capital at the world oil supply declines naturally about 5% per year, including offshore. Um, so you're going to have a, a shortfall of, of production, which will lead to of increase in prices and there's people calling for hundred dollar oil and then in the near future um the the eia energy information administration of the united states stated that they expect production from opec and opec plus russia additional to rise enough to prevent a spike in oil prices you think that's true or you know this is a more of a personal observation than a than a question of opec or whoever is is the and do you think it's due to lack of investment well, the, there was also a uh, back uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think the uh, Financial Times had an article where they quoted a number of commodity firms uh, talking about uh, the possibility of $100 oil. And uh, these are big players in the markets, uh, VTOL, Glencore, Trafigura, Goldman Sachs. You know, in looking at this. And, yeah, and they've I, got a lot of data analytics at hand to tell you, right. tell them what these <laughs> things are. They're not pulling these things out of the air. Exactly. So one of the things, though, that I think that, that anybody that tries to think about where, where prices are going has to consider uh, is, uh, you know, more than just uh, a number. Uh, there, there's an old joke uh, that economists 
uh, like to tell. Give them a number and give them a date, but never give them a date and a number at the same time. <laughs> right. So in looking at that FT article, uh, it was really kind of lacking a, a time frame associated with the forecast for $100 oil. Um, VTOL did say uh, in their remarks that their window of real tightness, and this goes to the, your point about investment, uh, was in the 2025 to 2030 timeframe, that that was the greatest risk of a gap between supply and demand if we didn't get the investment this year and next year that would be needed. And you, know, and you got that decline curve that you were talking about, then you're gonna run into a problem. Uh, one of the things that the Energy Information uh, Administration does, and uh, you know, since I was there uh, uh, looking at, you know, <laughs> as the administrator one time, when I got to CAPSARC, I encouraged our people to try to do something uh, similar is to use the uh, futures and options market uh, information, which incorporates a lot of, of players, including uh, people like, uh, like these uh, big commodity trading houses, but also airlines and other uh, people who uh, invest in or speculate in the, in the futures and options markets. And you can, you can take the data from the options market and you can, in a sense, work backwards towards uh, volatility uh, estimates. And, and let me just kind of bring this back to you. When you use the options market, what it, what it can do is it can help you with the date and the probability that I was saying really ought to go with forecasts. And what the options market is saying is that, that in the third quarter of 2021, so that's coming up, that, that oil has about a 68% chance of trading in the $50 to $80 range and it's got a 50% chance of trading. Uh, you know, if you take a, a, if you use a 50% probability, you're at a 53 to $72 range. But if you really want to incorporate this and say, I, I, I want to widen this out to a 95% probability, what are, what's the 95% probability? For all you folks, remember your stats, your stats class from university, two standard right, deviations exactly. from the mean. That takes right. up almost everything. Exactly. And what that one says, Kelly, is somewhere between $37 and $102. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I, I'm going to say, so I'm, I'm trying to come back to your, your question, you know, could oil go to $100? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, if you, you know, you could have an incident that drove it up there, you could have a you know, I mean, there are any any number of things that could happen to drive it there. And if you go to the extreme end of the probability ranges, yeah, you could get there. You could even go further. You get the further out you go, the wider that probability range gets. And uh, and and so you have to think about those things. Uh, let me come back to your earlier question. I think that that OPEC takes its obligation to try to stabilize the oil markets very seriously. There is spare capacity uh, and uh, production uh, was constrained to try to bring stability to the markets. And I, uh, and I you know, it's, it's certainly uh, not out of the, the realm of possibility that OPEC will look at this and kind of go, well, okay, so, uh, you know, we'll, uh, uh, we'll look at this and, and deal with it as, as is appropriate. So, uh, 
you know, you kind of come back to, I'm, I'm not going to get into what OPEC is going to do. That's, that's OPEC's decision. Uh, but there's a wide range of, of prices and, and the idea of keeping oil prices stable uh, is something that's held actually very, uh, uh, very dear to the, the people within OPEC who look at these things. Well, you know, it's, I, I read yesterday where, uh, you know, they're now talking about this little inflationary blip that they were suggesting would be two or three months. Well, maybe it'll be an eight or 10. And there's a big difference between in, in, the, in the rate of, of uh, what that costs for the consumer. And energy is a giant portion of inflation. And so there's another marker that suggests that maybe we have some higher energy prices for longer. But there's also an old axiom that what's the solution for high oil prices? high oil prices. <laughs> and the other side of that coin is what's the solution for low oil prices? Low oil prices. Right. Because it shifts the investment schedules around and, uh, and does bring into, into action uh, all of these different levels of fair capacity, quick reaction uh, capacity and long-term investments that you talked about earlier. I'm going to ask you one last question, Adam, and I know I understand your position with CAPSARC and where you are, and, and uh, I certainly know that uh, I'm not looking for details, but um, in the last year, uh, environment, societal, governance issue, ESG, has really come to the fore, and publicly traded Western companies, not just oil companies, uh, but, but the big oil companies, as you know, are in the, right in the spotlight of this and changing board members based on environmental uh, expertise at the board level at Exxon, et cetera. Um, they're under siege by activist shareholders, government pressure, insurance companies over their impact on the environment. National oil companies don't face the same scrutiny. Is that fair to say? Well, let me, let me say that, that there's kind of different aspects of, of scrutiny. I mean, and some of it is, is self-reflection. There are, are many companies who uh, look at, at ESG investing and they kind of go, well, look, we want to we do right for the environment. We want to be well-governed and we want to be a positive factor uh, in society. And we'll take the steps that are necessary to do that. And while we also uh, try to reflect the, the needs of our shareholders uh, for uh, providing uh, good returns. I think I agree with you that there has been uh, a great deal of activism on ESG investing that seems to suggest that that companies need to get out of the oil and gas business. And and I and I think we we want to come back to what we talked about earlier, Kelly. Is I, I'm thinking really that that there's kind of a failure of clear thinking on the part of some ESG investors as to what the problem is. What Saudi Arabia and the G20 summit leaders have been saying throughout last year and continuing to look at now is there is a way of thinking about uh, dealing with climate issues and challenges and dealing with emissions called the circular carbon economy. It starts with reduce, which everybody agrees is good, efficiency, renewables, even nuclear power. It adds reuse and recycle to try to take uh, carbon dioxide and turn it into a useful product that can actually help uh, maybe turn a profit even. 
And then there's remove. And remove means using nature-based solutions like forestry and coastal mangrove restorations and other things to deal with carbon dioxide, uh, but to also uh, use things like uh, oil and gas reservoirs, aqueous reservoirs to store carbon uh, safely and permanently, and even look at things like direct air capture. We have too much carbon dioxide in the, in the atmosphere, and we may actually want to just pull that out and, and dispose of it or use it in some way. So let me come back to ESG investing. I think it's just strange <laughs> that somebody would say that the only legitimate ESG investment is on the reduced side when things like direct air capture and storage in, in geologic formations of carbon dioxide would truly benefit the environment, would help us move towards our climate goals. Why aren't we making those uh, just as fair and equitable and good a solution as some of these other options. I'm not saying abandon those other things. I'm saying, let's use all the tools in the toolbox. If we, if we have a problem, let's not just try to address it with one or two tools. Let's unleash the engineers to develop the technology to do pilots and demonstrations and get going on this broadly covering all of the four R's in the, in the circular carbon economy. Reduce is fine but reuse, recycle, and remove have to be part of that, or we're just not going to get to where we need to be. Well, Adam, Adam, there's the quote we're going to use to put up on social media to, uh, <laughs> to uh, highlight this um, podcast. I, I absolutely agree. I, I, you know, the, there's never enough credit given to the research and development aspects of these giant companies that do, are doing this every minute as we're sitting here talking. They're working on these things. And in Canada, I think we need, a, we need more help from the government. You know, $30 million toward carbon capture and storage in Canada, or sorry, $1.5 billion announced. But, you know, when you, when you drill down to the numbers, it needs to be much more than that to solidify the use of the hydrocarbon in its best form, you know, and, and I think that we're, we're going to get there. I, I really believe that technology will help uh, lower carbon dioxide emissions. And that's a wonderful place to end. Although I would like to say I was yesterday reviewing the uh, global gas outlook. Uh, there's a large paper out there that you were a part of that uh, several um, virtual uh, seminars were held over the past six months talking about global gas demand. And uh, I'd like to, uh, schedule Adam to revisit let's talk about let's six months from now I'd like to bring you back on we'll talk about global gas demand because I think that it, it, it's getting left behind here with these giant discussions about oil and move to a haul of renewables well you know <laughs> get, I, I, I'm not going to get you started but natural gas can it can almost fill the void if you it, with all the the many attributes to its usage and hydrogen and uh, all colors from gray to blue well, you know, one of the interesting things about that, Kelly, is the International Energy Agency, uh, which has talked about, um, you know, a pathway to net zero, which is a is a, uh, a fairly draconian one and may not be the least cost one. Just a few years ago, wrote a big report about the value of using more natural gas to try to meet climate goals, and I, and I think that they got it they got it better in that last study than they. They did the most recent one. Let me just let me just throw one last thing in, Kelly. You asked earlier, 
what I had been reading lately, and I just wanted to take take a minute and tell you what I've been reading. There's a, a, a really interesting book by Javier uh, Blas and Jack Torchy, uh, who uh, are at Bloomberg, called The World for Sale. And it's uh, subtitled Money, Power, and the Traders Who Barter the Earth's Resources. It's all about these commodity traders that we're talking about and others in that area. And it's really kind of interesting to, to see uh, what's going on there. And the other one, uh, that I would highly recommend people have a look at is a book by David Rundell called Vision or Mirage. And that one was uh, subtitled Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. And it's really a, uh, I would call it a, uh, a fair uh, assessment of, of the uh, economic and social landscape in, in Saudi Arabia written from somebody who's lived here uh, in, in the kingdom for some time. And uh, uh, and he uh, he ends on a uh, you know what I would call a fairly optimistic note, which is this, the same place that I'm at. Uh, but he does a really good job, I think, of explaining Saudi Arabia to people who still see uh, the kingdom as kind of a mysterious place. And uh, so that's a good one to have a look at too. Back to you. Well, we, uh, th that's a great place to end, Adam. And I thank you for your candor about the kingdom. And we understand its its importance in the energy sphere and, and societally what they're trying to do to enhance the value for their people. Um, and th so thanks, Adam, for joining us today. Real pleasure and uh, looking forward to coming back again, Kelly. <laughs> great, Adam. We'll revisit the gas market. And thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CJAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, please give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content from an independent, unbiased, nonpartisan position, I just ask people questions. You can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.